Well, good morning, everyone. Um, this morning we're continuing our study of rebuilding from the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. And last Sunday evening when Tim was speaking, we saw the completion of the walls in Jerusalem. And we saw how God intends us as a body of believers not only to physically build a church where worship can take place, but also how each of us as living stones of the church must build each other up in love. Today we will be focusing on chapters 8 and 9 of Nehemiah, which demonstrate how God works revival amongst his people when exposed to the sound of his word. And this culminates in Israel confessing their sins and renewing their covenant with the Lord. Um, So if you have a Bible with you, or if you use one of the few Bibles, would you please turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 8. And that can be found on page 403 of the Pew Bible. So I'm going to read chapter 8 in its entirety, and then um, the first three verses of chapter 9. And later on we'll look at the the lengthy prayer of confession from chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 8, reading from verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood, and I'm not going to name all of these to embarrass myself. Um, So we'll move down to verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And Joshua, and I'll I'll leave out these names again, um, down to the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the meaning so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go on your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went on their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together with Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses, 
that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the, and all the assembly of those who had returned from, from the captivity made booths and lived in booths. For from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had, had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read the book of the law of God, They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. And chapter 9. Now in the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of God their God for a quarter of the day, and for another quarter of it they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. Revival has been described as the Spirit of God working through the Word of God in the lives of the people of God. It is interesting to note from the outset that the people asked Ezra to read God's word to them. And they told Ezra the scribe, bring the book of the law of Moses. God was already at work before the book was opened. The fact that each of us are here this morning is evidence that God himself has prompted us to be here. You may believe you're here because maybe your parents dragged you out, or it's maybe just something that you think you should do on a Sunday. But God has you here for a reason. He wants us to meet under the sound of his word and to understand his word. Ezra, who read the book of the law, is described as a scribe and a priest. He was responsible for having the temple rebuilt and for returning the children of Israel to worship after their years in exile. Being a scribe, he was devoted to God's word And as a priest, he was devoted to God himself. And hearing God's word is what ignites revival. We're told that Ezra read from early morning until midday, so a period of approximately six hours. I wouldn't be popular if I read for six hours this morning, but we are told the ears of the people were attentive. These people wanted to hear from God's word. From daylight they had listened So they were willing to make a sacrifice to listen. This is an attitude I know I could personally benefit from. Verses 4 to 6 indicate how God's word was received. And the lesson we can learn from the Israelites is that preparation is necessary to receive the word. Coming with a willingness to forget about ourselves, our weekly tasks, and whatever worries we may have, and to focus solely in God's word, to submit, as it were, ourselves to what God is saying to us from his word. 
Thankfully, it is not the preacher or the teacher's words that have meaning, but it is God's infallible word that we should be yearning to listen to as believers this morning. We're told that when Ezra opened the book in the sight of the people, they stood up. These people recognized it for what it was, not the word of man, but the word of God. I'm not implying that we should physically stand this morning when the Bible is opened and present, but in our minds and in our hearts, we should be honoring God's word by giving it the respect and attention that it is due. As Ezra blesses the Lord, the people respond in three ways. They thanked God, they prayed, and they worshipped. When God is working in us, it is reasonable that we should respond to him in thanksgiving and in prayer and in praise, something which many of the Christians have already done this morning in the first service as we broke bread. We should respond to God in this way when we comprehend what he has done for each of us through his son, Jesus Christ. And this should be a daily undertaking for each of us in a personal way, as well as corporate worship on a Sunday morning. It's important to note from verses 7 and 8 that the men with the extravagant names which I chose not to read helped these people to understand the law. Being under the sound of God's word is only of value to us if we actually get the grips with what God is saying to us. I can say personally that I have read and listened to various Bible, Bible passages during my life, and sometimes I felt like it's, it's maybe washed over my head, or maybe I thought I knew what God was saying, but then a speaker has presented it, and all of a sudden I felt a true sense of understanding, and this is a real blessing when it happens. If you can imagine an art restorer cleaning a painting, he's simply revealing things that were already there. However, the details are now clearer, the colors are now brighter. The viewer can see the work how it was intended to be seen in its full glory. Something which we have read or heard 20 times in the past may all of a sudden be revealed to us in its entirety. And I believe preparation through prayer and attention when we are going to listen to God's word will improve our understanding of God's full glory. In the next section of chapter 8, we see the response to God's word and how that prompts revival. The people wept when they heard the words of the law. In 2 Timothy 3 and 16, we read, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The truth can hurt us. Reproof and correction can be hard to take because human nature dictates that we don't like to see ourselves as we really are, fallible and sinners. But Nehemiah, Ezra, and the Levites tell the people, do not mourn and stop weeping. Each of us has sinned and falls short of God's glory, But if we have trusted Jesus, we should be rejoicing rather than being in a mournful state in our sinful nature. Yes, we are great sinners, but Jesus is a greater Savior. When we are under conviction of our sin, as these people were, we can still be joyful because it means God is working in us. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Our emotional state doesn't have to control us. We can still do God's will even when we don't feel like it. 
After the reading, the people went away rejoicing because they had understood what they had heard. It is a great feeling when God really speaks to you through his word, when you get a genuine understanding of what he is saying to you. For the remainder of chapter 8, um, we're told about the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, as it's also translated. The heads of the fathers' houses had come together with the priests and the Levites and with Ezra to study the words of the law. This demonstrates to us that leaders within the local church need to understand and walk in accordance with God's word for the benefit of the flock. In this case, we see an act of simple obedience. They take the attitude of God has said it, so we will do it. The Feast of Tabernacles had not been practiced since the days of Joshua, but the people simply relied on God's word rather than on tradition. This is a great lesson for each of us as believers today. All that we, sh- all that we do should be directed solely by God's word rather than what tradition would dictate? Do you meet regularly to break bread with other believers? Jesus has told us, do this in remembrance of me. If you are saved, be baptized. Believe and be baptized. The Lord has left us simple commands in the New Testament to us as believers. And just as the Israelites decided to celebrate tabernacles as they read about it, Each of us should embrace what Christ has asked us to do, not out of tradition, but because his word says it. We are told that there was very great rejoicing as the people dwelt in booths during the feast of the seventh month. It was a remembrance how God had provided for their ancestors in the wilderness during the exodus, and they could probably relate to how God was providing for their needs with the return to Jerusalem and the rebuilding that had successfully taken place. The rejoicing would have originated from their obedience to God's word. Again, this idea hasn't changed since the return from exile. I can say personally that when I break bread and a feast that Jesus himself ordained as a simple act of remembrance to his sacrifice on my behalf, I can rejoice I gain the fulfillment that comes from thanking the one who died on a cross for me, taking the punishment for my sins and dealing with my sin problem until he said, finished. He is risen again and one day too I will rise to be with him. Through obedience and remembering Jesus and the feast that we shared in the first service this morning, we too can rejoice for the protection and the security that being a believer in Christ brings us. This is true gladness, and it is found in obedience to God's word, rather than doing our own thing, as we all have been um, deceived into thinking at one time or another in our lives. We move on to chapter 9. This chapter is largely composed of a prayer of confession by the children of Israel, and it concludes in a covenant commitment to the Lord. The chapter begins with a scene of dramatic yet humble repentance. The walls of Jerusalem are completed and functioning. The people had heard and obeyed God's word, and the Spirit of God is clearly at work again in the nation. You would be forgiven for expecting a party atmosphere, 
but instead there is fasting, there is sackcloth, and there's dust-covered heads. The people had humbled their hearts after the blessings God had given them. Generation after generation before them had disobeyed God, suffered a fall, and came back for help. God had rescued them, and and they had turned to idols, golden calves, and fallen to foreign enemies. Again and again, they disobey, and they come back until we reach the exile to Babylon, and God seems to have finally abandoned them. But the Lord has rewarded faithfulness from men like Nehemiah and Ezra, and it seems the nation has recognized God's devotion and provision for Israel for centuries. So they now humble themselves in thanksgiving and repentance before their sustainer. This repentance is the realization of their own sin and disobedience before God, as well as their fathers and their fathers' fathers. This realization that they had missed the mark resulted in the people confessing their sins. And this is of great importance. It is of great importance to us who are Christians too here this morning. Although we are saved and secure, we still sin. We still miss the mark. In archery, if one doesn't hit the target in the right place, they would have missed the mark. Regardless of whether the arrow has missed by one centimeter or ten meters, it is a miss either way. What we learn from the children of Israel is that although they had seen great victories, both physically through rebuilding and also spiritually through their obedience to God's word, there is still humble repentance. The same should be true for each of us who have already come to Jesus. Repentance doesn't finish when we are saved, but it should grow as we grow closer to Jesus. We should be aware of our sinfulness even more, Spurgeon said, repentance grows as faith grows. Do not make any mistake about it. Repentance is not a thing of days and weeks, a temporary penance to be got over as fast as possible. No, it is the grace of a lifetime, like faith itself. Repentance is the inseparable companion of faith. In verse 3, we see again the reading of the book of the law for one quarter of the day, and then for a further quarter they confessed their sins and worshipped the Lord their God. It seems that hearing the word again had a profound impact on the people's hearts, causing an outpouring of confession and then worship. A major step in revival both then and now for us is a brokenness of heart. Renowned evangelist Alan Redpath said, How often the discovery of something new in the loveliness of the Lord Jesus has brought with it the discovery of some new corruption in our own hearts. God will never plant the seed of his life upon the soil of a hard, unbroken spirit. He will only plant the seed where the conviction of the spirit has brought brokenness where the soil has been watered with the tears of repentance as well as tears of joy. The Levites and those leading the people gathered to confess aloud through prayer. It's probably the longest prayer that's recorded in Scripture, so I'll not be reading it now, but it begins with praise to God for his creation, the covenant that he made with Israel, 
the God who delivered Israel from Egypt and provided for them in the wilderness. This is followed by the confession of a sinful response to God's goodness, of acting proudly, of disobedience and rebellion. There are two indications of revival contained here. After the brokenness, there is a reflection on the goodness of God. When we are humble before God, we can see who he really is, our creator, our sustainer, and realize just how good he actually is to us. But our response to his goodness is not always in keeping. We can become self-reliant, proud and important, doing things our own way and ignoring his word. Another sign of revival is when we recognize our sinfulness in contrast to God's goodness. For each of us who are here this morning who are believers in Christ, the examples given in this prayer of Israel's history are a reminder and a warning of the consequences of sin. Yes, if you've placed your trust in Christ, your sins are forgiven, but this doesn't mean we should freely sin as we please. In Romans 6 we read, Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We cannot expect to live as Christians and walk in newness of life if we willfully disobey God and do as we please. From personal experience, there have been times in my Christian life where I have disobeyed God I have neglected his word and I've tried to please myself and there's no satisfaction in this. This causes a sense of separation from the Lord and it can cause a lack of understanding of the Bible's teaching. If as a Christian you allow sinfulness to take a grip in your life, you're allowing less room for the working of the Holy Spirit. Salvation will never be lost but there is no room for spiritual growth And one cannot expect to be happy and satisfied as a Christian when sin is the dominant feature in your life. Maybe you're here this morning for some reason, maybe unknown to yourself, but you've come along to Crescent anyway. Gradually, you've grown distant from the Lord. Your life is filled with other things and you feel like a stranger. You may have abandoned the Lord in your life, but like Israel, he will never abandon you. The prayer continues, stating that God is gracious to Israel's response. Even when they molded a golden calf to worship, God did not forsake them in the wilderness. He provided manna to eat, water to drink, and clothes to wear. God is still willing to show grace to those who have gone far away from him, who have filled their life with idols in preference to worshiping and following him. If that sounds like you, your Heavenly Father wants and will have you back. The prayer charts the cycle of Israel's relationship with God, how he allowed them to take possession of the promised land, and how they prospered there. But once all was well, the disobedience again crept in. The people rebelled, they killed prophets of the Lord, and were eventually delivered to their enemies and into oppression.
This is, God's, this is God bringing correction, a wake-up call to the people for their actions. Again, the people turn back to God in their time of trouble. But as soon as more blessing is received, the people turn away again. Each time the cycle continues, the motions appear to get deeper and deeper. This same principle can apply to our lives. You may even feel as though God has gotten tired of you, that you cannot ask for forgiveness for something that you've already asked for countless times before. But God never turns away a repentant heart. If this sounds familiar, you can make a plea with God for intervention, just as Israel did towards the conclusion of the prayer. They ask God to deliver them from their oppression. As a province in Persian Empire, at this time Israel was heavily taxed and had obligations to a foreign government. In verse 33 it says, Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. This is what real confession is. It is an acknowledgement that God is right and that we are wrong. It is agreeing with God on both of these facts. As Christians, confession of sin is not optional. Augustine noted the confession of evil works is the first beginning of good works. Proverbs 28 and 13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will attain mercy. As from the beginning in chapter 8, when we sit under the sound of God's word or read it for ourselves, a realization of our sinful state is revealed and we must confess our sins to God if we are to walk in newness of life in Christ to its full potential. Even if we make mistakes and we sin, God is willing to show us mercy and to bless us again if we acknowledge our brokenness and confess our wrongdoing to him. The Apostle John tells us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The prayer concludes with Israel making a covenant to live in obedience with God's word. Revival took the form of brokenness, reflection on God's goodness, and recognition of sinfulness. So maybe the, sign, the final sign of revival is a renewed obedience to God. If you have been broken down and acknowledge who God is, if you realize and confess your sin, then ask God to help you to obey him in your everyday life. The revival of Israel in Nehemiah is based on the principles of repentance, confession, and obedience. I trust that for all who are believers here this morning that the example set in these two chapters will be of practical help and encouragement to bring our brokenness and sin before God on a daily basis and ask for his help to follow his word. And finally, if you're here this morning and you've been listening to this word but you wouldn't classify yourself as a Christian, as a believer in Christ, you too have heard God's word. Central to the Bible, to God's infallible word, is his son, Jesus Christ. In John's Gospel, chapter 1, Jesus himself is described as the word. In the beginning was the word, 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God's Word is not only relevant to us who follow Jesus, but it is of indescribable importance to anyone who doesn't know him yet. Jesus, the Word, God's Son, died for you on a cross, and he took the punishment due to you for your sins so you can be free from the terrible consequences of sin. God is a holy God, and he cannot allow sin into heaven, and yet this morning I've talked about Christians who will one day be in heaven and yet have sinned. The difference, the only difference this morning is Jesus. Verse 12 of the same chapter of John states, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus has already paid the penalty for all sin forever by his sacrificial death on a cross for you. All he asks you to do is receive him, to believe in him. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks again this morning for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and what he did for each of us at Calvary. We thank you that when us of us here Christians this morning realized our sin, that we simply came to him or put our trust in him for our salvation. We just ask that anyone who's here this morning who does not yet know Jesus as Savior, that they would do the same, that they would realize that he loved them and that he died for them on a cross. We thank you just now for the the words that we read from Nehemiah and the the practical application that that each of us who are Christians can take from that in our lives to come before God each day in repentance and brokenness and to confess our sin to him, to receive his blessing and to help us grow more like Jesus in our lives. We ask now that you would part us in our blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.